Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Hello and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm WFIU-WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. We are talking about the 2016 legislative session and adjourned last night. And we're going to be talking about which bills made it to the governor's desk and which didn't. We're going to talk about what the lawmakers' decisions mean for the future of health, safety, and infrastructure. We have a lot of surprises to talk about, too. We want to welcome our guest today, Ed Feigenbaum. He is a political analyst, and he's joining us on the phone today. Representative Dan Forstall is a Democrat from Indianapolis. And we also have Representative Jeff Ellington. He is a Republican from here in Bloomington. I want to welcome all of you to the program. Thanks Thank for making the trip. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. I want to invite our guests to join the conversation today. The number is 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition or tweet at Noon Edition. So let's just go ahead and start off. We talked about how this session was going to be one talking about road funding and anti-discrimination protections. So let's just start by talking about those two and what progress we've made. I'll start with you, Representative Forstall. Sure. Uh, I, you know, I think on the uh, roads front, uh, we made some serious progress here. Uh, we are very, uh, I, I know as a House Democrat and uh, as the ranking member on the Roads and Transportation Committee, I'm pleased to see uh, that so many components of our original plan made it into the final plan. We thought that those were very common sense uh, ideas to include, um, and the fact that those made it in at the end, almost in their entirety, uh, is really a testament to the work that went in on all sides. Uh, we just wish that we would have reached this you know, decision before two months of... Uh, posturing and arguing and those kinds of things, but that's part of the political process. Uh, and as you mentioned, the LGBT uh, issue, that will go down as one of the uh, the most missed issues of the session. Uh, the fact that we walked away with nothing that lets the LGBT community know uh, that Indiana supports them and does not feel that the being able to discriminate it, uh, against them sh is legal, that we think that should be illegal, uh, was just left in limbo, and so uh, we are left to try to fight to get that done again next year. We would have liked to see something happen this year. And your response to, to that, Representative Ellington? Well, I'd just like to say for a first-time legislator that uh, you hear in the past and in, even in the present media about all the uh, political uh, games and all the screaming of this and that, and I don't want to say my, as my first time with the the legislature in that session it was very equally uh, and thoughtful in taking both sides, I think, of some issues. And the road issue, I think, was one of them. Uh, that I was really surprised that uh, most of the bills that was up there uh, went through 8410, sometimes 7327. But a lot of them went through like, you know, 9400, 960. And that really surprised me that uh, I could see that come together, especially on education issues. And uh, I was really amazed that uh, we were able to work through that and uh, uh, to vote to get rid of ISTEP and try to restructure that. I think that was uh, coming up there for a first time and hearing from my uh, community teachers and parents and uh, public officials, uh, superintendents and principals. That I think that was a goal they wanted, and it was accomplished. And uh, I think, as a general assembly, we should be very proud of what we uh, ended up with. And Ed, I, I want you just sort of as an outsider here, if you can weigh in on maybe how you would grade this year's legislative session. Uh, you know, sure. I would. As an outsider who's, who's watched 
some of the the uh, split partisanship in in the legislature, with Democrats controlling one chamber and Republicans the other, or the uh, the Democrats having one chamber, the Republicans having another, and Democratic governors. Um, it was very interesting to watch this session in particular because we really did see a, a lot of bipartisanship. And that was remarkable in that I think everybody came into the, the session with a great deal of hesitancy about what we'd see, given the, the massive overhang of the, uh, the civil rights and religious freedom issues kind of uh, really dominating the, the pre-session talk. Um, you know, if, if this were ESPN and, and you were waiting on the, the, the big game, you know, all the commentators uh, leading up to the game would only talk about that one issue and, and wouldn't be talking about the things that other legislators wanted to concentrate, like Representative Forstall indicated, roads. But once we got past the the LGBT issue, the civil rights and religious uh, liberties issue, I guess you could say, other than that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? I think everything really moved very, very smoothly. And if you look at the votes, for example, in the, the Senate, uh, more than half were, were essentially unanimous, and about 90% of them um, were bipartisan. And that really spoke of a great deal to the, the work of individual legislators and leadership in all four caucuses this year. And, and Representative Pilat, the House Democratic leader, said yesterday that, you know, if you looked at each of the four caucus, I'm sorry, not the four caucus road plans, the, the three caucus road plans that were offered and the governor's plan at the beginning of the session, and then you went at that point, and you tried to take the best elements out of each. You said, that's basically what we ended up with. And that really speaks well to the quality of this session. One of the things in the road funding bill that got put in there was the funding for the third regional cities initiative. And, and maybe, Dan, you can speak to why that was important to get this bill passed or how that how the two figured in together. Well, I mean, I think that was probably one of the political aspects of, of the bill. Not that the regional cities program is uh, bad and doesn't have merit and, and frankly, you know, shouldn't be uh, uh, included as public policy in Indiana. Uh, but, you know, to be clear, it was added as a sweetener to help bring uh, the governor along so that he would be supportive of this issue. And sometimes that's how the legislative process works. The good news is at the end of the day, uh, we end up with a third regional city that is going to be helped by millions of dollars in economic development money and a uh, billion dollar infrastructure plan that will at a minimum get us through the next two years uh, and also sets us up and puts, a, puts us in a good position uh, to begin the budget process next session from a, from a position of strength as opposed to uh, this chaotic emergency crisis situation which we operated in this year. And, and I would make one note just, uh, you know, uh, because it's interesting. Uh, Leader Pilath and I, when we were working through the roads bill, uh, talked about what we might see at the end of this thing. And this was at the very beginning, early January, when we had crafted the plan and presented it. Uh, and the leader thought that we would see the local money, the regional city's money, the scholarship money for Speaker Bosma, and uh, a, one, a penny or two uh, from the sales tax on gasoline going towards infrastructure. He was right the entire way. He had it in January. He knew what this would look like as it goes forward, and that just shows what kind of uh, legislator Leader PLF is. When we're talking about these tax increases, I know there were proposals to raise the gas tax and the cigarette tax. Is that just a non-starter in an election year? Is that something we learned here? I, you know, I don't even think it was necessarily that it was uh, the election year. It, it played a, a point, no doubt. Uh, but I think it, that was more for... Uh, you know, Senator or Senate pro tempore David Long and then uh, Senator Luke Kinley, who both have primary opponents. From my caucus's point of view, uh, what we wanted to see was uh, the shift in tax burden that has been occurring be reversed, at least to some degree. And I'll give you an example. The corporate income tax, we passed a bill a year or two ago that slowly phases it to uh, half of what it currently is. If we had just frozen that in place this year, it would have meant $250 million. 
we could have applied that to the road funding and then reworked how uh, you know the tax increases on middle class families would have worked a- after being offset by something like that. That was important to us. That was something we fought for. Uh, and before we were you know ready to acquiesce with tax increases, we wanted that burden to be spread out to some of the folks who have had it very good for a very long time. We, we had a hard time going back to our constituents and explaining to them, hey, large corporations' taxes, they're going down next year, uh, but the assembly wants your taxes to go up. That was just a non-starter. Um, Representative, yeah. I would say on my perspective of what we ended up with the, uh, the road funding, really is, you know, in any negotiation, you know, keep in mind, this is the first time I've been up here. But, uh, you know, when you go to your parents and say, hey, mom, you know, uh, I want a new car or I want a new truck. And you know they don't, they're not going to give that to you. And you're just starting the conversation that, you know, something is needed, uh, you know, whether it be road tax dollars or a sustainable plan. Uh, and so uh, I think this plan, uh, though people can look back and say, oh, you ask for too much uh, at a time when we probably shouldn't have, but really, I think it was good timing. It was a plan that worked out. Uh, I think the House on our side is very happy with what we received, and we know that we set the tone uh, that there is infrastructure needs out there, and I think it puts the emphasis on all sides of the House and the governor's office that uh, in about a year and a half, two years, it's something we'll have to pick back up again, and we've already set the tone. We've already painted this picture that's needed. The public agrees. Farm Bureau agrees. Truck Association agrees. Small business, large business agrees. All these factions uh, that sometime are on opposite sides uh, agree that this is a plan that needs to be looked at and performed at a future date. And uh, I think uh, we're very happy with what we've received. And I think the public should be uh, because in those counties that have 50,000 less uh, as uh, far as residents, we will get um, at least part of this. I think it was like 50 percent, or is it 75? 50 percent? Are you talking about the money that goes to yeah. populations of under 50,000? Yes, 50 percent. 50 percent. So, and uh, a lot of those will be, uh, and there's a whole list of there, you know, so like if uh, the highway department needs a new grader or it needs a new dump truck, uh, new snow plows, uh, whereas before they couldn't uh, take this kind of money and apply towards that, it'd be capital. Now, this will take road dollars and gives more local options to local communities. And the commissioners, county council, cities and towns uh, will be able to use this more than they would have before. And uh, I've been hearing a lot of positive effects, and I've only been out of session 12 hours. Yeah, yeah. and, and actually to piggyback on that, one of the things that the House fo- fought for, uh, and Representative Ellington and I, I'm sure, agree on this, and, and fought the Senate for, was to remove the restrictions on local units of government for how they use this money. I mean, when the the money that was included in Senator Hirschman's bill, Senate Bill 67, was basically a return of money that was already theirs, but now with restrictions on it. But through that negotiating process, we were able to give that money back to the locals the way it should have been given with no restrictions so that they can use it. Uh, and and tailor it to whatever needs their local community has. And that was really important. It was something we were able to get done. You know, I think road funding is something on everyone's minds right now. It's pothole season. Um, You're talking, though, about a billion dollars over two years. But can you break that down a little bit in terms of what how much that would be for local i mean it sounds like a lot of money but maybe when that trickles down to a local community and of course i'm sure everyone understands it's also statewide and that's important too but how much are we talking locally yeah that was actually uh, one of the points of contention after the the governor's 21st century uh, roads plan uh, and and let's remember this is a billion dollar increase uh, not just a you know a flat billion dollars this is an increase on top of uh, the money that we are already seeing, which fills the uh, the gap that most estimates, most conservative estimates have, have had. So, you know, on the conservative side, Indiana has been operating with about a billion dollar shortfall year to year for the last several years. This, you know, meets that, that kind of minimum need, uh, but it also has a strong impact. One of the things that... Uh, I would say that was included in House Democrats and House Republican plans and the uh, Senate plans were uh, was money for local units. The reason that my caucus uh, felt that that was important is because with all of the tax caps and tax cuts that have been passed over the past, you know, probably decade, we really hamstrung local units ability, local units of government 
their ability to confront the issues that are facing them. Uh, you know, they are struggling to just make ends meet. I remember my mayor in Indianapolis, Mayor Hogsett, uh, you know, the, the our former mayor, Ballard, said that we were balancing budgets and balancing budgets. And then when Mayor Hogsett got in there, he came to find out we were operating uh, $50 billion behind. We had a 50, or I'm sorry, 50 billion, 50 million dollars of uh, shortfall in Indianapolis. And that's revenue that we need to make up. This will go a long way to helping to, you know, close those gaps up. Uh, but that is why we fought so hard to ensure that local units of government received, uh, you know, close to half of the money that is included here, because when it when it's all said and done, the state is the main reason why these local units are struggling now. We we cut off the amount of revenue that is headed their way, and it's time for us to start helping them and act in concert as opposed to uh, as adversaries. I went to absolutely huge. Um, but as, as Representative Forstall just pointed out, you know, we've, we've had a, a billion dollar shortfall annually, um, and that shortfall is is just in the area of maintenance. And what this bill does not do is it does not provide money for essentially new state roads. So it's not going to complete right. you know I sixty nine from from Bloomington to Indianapolis. And we're going to have to look to other sources for that. But right now, the, the local units of government were concerned about, you know, what happens on I-69, what happens with, you know, additional lanes on I-65 or I-74, I-70. So they're concerned with local roads and streets, and this goes a long way toward alleviating their concerns. They get, what is it, 75, or they have to use 75% of that uh, local option income tax money that's coming back to them a little bit more quickly for roads and, and infrastructure like that. And I think that this bill probably would have passed with almost as, as large a margin as it did in both chambers. And it was it really was huge given, you know, all the work that went into this package, even if you didn't have all those other sweeteners. But each year outside of the, the budget you're gonna have one bill that's essentially going to be a Christmas tree that that people see as, okay, this is a bill that everybody's going to want to or have to vote for, and let's put in all those other little pet projects. You know, let's make everybody happy, and, and if they want the, the bigger piece of the pie, they're going to have to go along with you know, the 13th check for teachers or the, the $10 million for the, the teacher scholarships or the $42 million for that, that third regional cities project. You know, that brings the, the doubters on board. You know, you can give them a, another reason to vote for it, or given the bulk of the bill, you give them something uh, that they can't vote against. And that, that's what happened here. And obviously, you know, the, the more cynical among us are going to look to what happened on, on Wednesday and in, in the, the very emotional debate on the abortion bill, where a, a number of legislators got up and said, well, you know, I really hope that nobody uses this against me politically because, you know, this is a, a speech or a vote of conscience that I'm about to make. But we all know that, you know, there, there are different bills that have a particular item in there that, you know, somebody will pick up on in a campaign and say, well, they voted against such and such. Well, that may have been one sentence in, you know, a huge budget bill, and, you know, 99.99% of that bill was great, but you're you're being picked on for that one little provision. And that's, you know, that's just one of the, the tough things about politics, and, and people like Jeff and, and Dan, you know, have, have developed thick skins and understand that, and they're willing to uh, take the hit for the greater good. And that's what a lot of people did on uh, a number of bills this year. Fortunately, I think in the end, the, the road funding bill was, was not one like that. But, you know, if, if you want to find little things that, that people can pick on, there were some in there. So I want to remind our listeners that you can join the conversation today. It's 812-855-0811, toll-free 1-877-285-9348, as we are talking today about the 2016 legislative session. Representative Forstall, uh, as we're talking about tucking things into bills, one comes to mind pretty quickly here about the BMV debate yeah. that was happening last night. Can you explain what happened sure. and your, your response? Absolutely. Um, and, and I will try to keep this as concise as I can, but uh, I, w at the risk of sounding like I'm tooting my own horn, uh, when the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, it was discovered that they had been overcharging Hoosiers to the tune of $100 million, uh, I really was the, the only legislator who... 
uh, really came out and said, this must be fixed. To restore Hoosier confidence is absolutely essential, and especially in an agency that touches every Hoosier. Every Hoosier, at one time or another, deals with the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. And as we started digging into it, I found out that the, you know, the BMV previously was known uh, as being, you know, a place where, frankly, corruption ran rampant and, and uh, you know, money had changed hands and that things had slowly gotten better over time, but there were still a lot of problems. So you fast forward a little bit. Uh, I started to raise issues about all of these fees that were being uh, leveled against Hoosiers that served no purpose other than to you know, reach into their wallets and purses and take money. And so I fought very hard. I was called a, a you know, names. I was told that I was wrong. I was called a liar, uh, you know, shut out of the debate. And then finally, uh, the the governor and Chairman Ed Soliday, the uh, Rhodes Committee chairman, invited me in to work on this legislation. And we did it under the understanding that uh, we would work together and find a solution to reform the BMV. We would compromise uh, and move the legislation forward for the betterment of the BMV. I had, uh, you know, a commitments from the chairman, Zalade, uh that no additional language would be added. And uh, actually, one particular piece that costs uh, this, uh Marion County, Indianapolis, $1 million in tax revenue that my constituents are going to have to now make up, uh, I had specifically asked that that be removed before it came back to the House for a final vote, and he assured me that that would happen. That did not happen. Uh, at the uh, Literally, on the very last day of session, language that is dangerous for motorists, that uh, basically is a sweetheart deal for railroads so that they don't have to pay to maintain railroad crossings. Uh, also, language that forgives taxes for people who are delinquent on paying their taxes on, uh, when it comes to mobile homes. Uh, all of those things were tucked into this legislation. Oh, and I'm sorry, one other thing. There uh, is uh, now language in that bill that allows a car rental company to charge you a fee, you and I a fee, uh, that says if you wreck your car, we are charging this fee so that we can at least know we're going to recoup this amount. The, the catch is this. If you return the car unwrecked, undamaged, they still get to keep the fee now. So it's another fee increase. Uh, I was deeply disappointed to be deceived by the governor and by Chairman Soliday on this issue, and I made my displeasure known from the microphone yesterday. We worked in good faith for over a year. Uh, I visited BMV branches. I met with leaders, and to have it, uh, you know, to, to be the victim of a bait and switch on the last night of session uh, is just I don't think that's the way that we should legislate at the Indiana General Assembly, and I'm deeply disappointed in it. And your name is not – you did not vote for the bill, ultimately. And I removed my bill – or my name from the bill uh, because the provisions that were put in were bad enough that it warranted that. But ultimately, the bill will really simplify the fee structure at the BNB. It has these other things like you mentioned now. But for Hoosiers, this is – there's a lot of there's a lot of things in this to celebrate. I think so. And, um, you know, I, I realize – after the first week that, uh, you know, there's 150 of us plus the governor. And then a lot of the issues, there's 150, not only the governor, then you got uh, Glenda Ritz that we have to deal with. So there's uh, sometimes four parts of the body that needs to be put together. And uh, we can talk about last minute things happening, but that's the way this, this place has worked for, you know, 119th session. Uh, but, but I, I would interject that I know you, the you've been on a lot of, of committees. So the rule of I mean the rule yeah. of thumb is, uh, and th I was told this on the very first day I came to the General Assembly: never break your word. If you tell somebody you're going to do something, you do it and you follow it through till the end. Otherwise, you're untrustworthy forever. And I have always stuck to that. And I think that is a commitment that my my uh, colleagues who worked on this with me should have stuck to. Yeah. For one example is for railroads. You know. I'm a fireman, Dan's a fireman, but there's something that most people in Indiana are not. I work along railroads. I work for railroad companies. I clear pathways. I clear intersections. There are stipulations on, depending on the type of grade of crossing, they count that on the miles of sight, they count that on the elevation, they count that on the community, and the passes over for car uh, uh, crossing numbers, you know, per day or per week. Um, 
you know, they they are all within federal guidelines. A lot of this had to do with cleaning up the technicalities on the footage is in federal code versus state code. Uh, has nothing to do with having uh, intersections that are not uh, line of sight and uh, would do anything to detriment safety. I mean, you're talking cr- uh, trains that literally when they wreck, uh, they're all about prevention. They do everything they can prevention-wise for those because you're talking tens or maybe Fifty to a hundred million, depending on what that train is carrying, if it goes off the tracks. So this has that one tip stipulation had nothing to do with safety. Um, okay. I mean, again, I got I have to disagree with my friend and and the United Transportation Union workers said this bill will cost lives in Indiana. Every time a school bus or farm equipment crosses, they have a they under this bill will have a much shorter line of sight. And according to the people who drive those trains, this bill now is dangerous for Hoosiers. We do have to take a quick break, but I want to invite our listeners again to join the conversation, 812-855-0811. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Hello and welcome back to Noon Edition. Today we're talking about the 2016 legislative session. We have Ed Feigenbaum. He's a political analyst. Representative Dan Forstall, a Democrat from Indianapolis, and Representative Jeff Ellington. He's a Republican from Bloomington. We spent a lot of the first half talking about road funding, so we want to shift gears here a little bit. Um, HIP 2.0, there's there's an effort now, a bill passed the legislature that would put that into law. Ed, can you speak to, was that premature? HIP has been on the books now at two two years? Yeah, it, it really depends upon your, your perspective on a lot of different things, Sarah, and I think a lot of, of legislators were, were kind of uh, uncertain as to exactly why this was, was being proposed and why it, why it seemed to be such a big issue literally uh, only in the last week. And some made it out to be um, you know, an endorsement of Obamacare or an expansion of Medicare, just the fact that, that we were dealing with this particular measure. Others were saying, okay, well, we need this to literally institutionalize it and to make sure that, that this stays in effect in the event that there are some changes in the, the federal law. And and we also saw, you know, next door in Kentucky just this year that a new governor can come in and, and say, all right, I'm dismantling this thing. And unless you've got this in state statutes, um, you know, that can certainly happen. And I think just uh, earlier this week, the attorney general in Kentucky found out that he, he wasn't even allowed to uh, to defend keeping that law in place because the governor was, was trying to dismantle that. So there are a lot of different considerations here, some of them political, I think some statutory. And, and you saw members of, of both parties kind of uh, split up among four different ways, I guess, on this. Uh, amidst all that uncertainty and, and lack of some real specifics as to what was being done and why. Mm-hmm. We have a, a question from a caller here. This was obviously a short session since it wasn't a budget year. The caller saying, why is the session so short when we have so much to accomplish? It's laid out that way in statute. Uh, and we have actually had uh, representatives uh, broached the idea of balancing the sessions instead of having a long and a short, having them meet in the middle and be the same all the way through. Um, but ultimately, in 
uh, statute, it says we must have a long budget session that will run X amount of days, and then we will have in the net following year a short session that will run X amount of days. But we could always change that, and some people do favor that. And Ed, maybe you could. Is, have we seen through the years more things worked out in summer study committees because of that? It, it maybe it's just me becoming more aware of it, but it seems like so many things are assigned to a task force over the summer or assigned for more research. Yeah, actually, I think in, in recent years, even though there are more things that seem to be going to study committee, uh, it's to some extent a, a function of legislative leaders saying, "Hey, we'll we'll go ahead and instead of passing something that may not be satisfactory." You know, we'll you by sending this to a summer study committee. But unlike back in the day, unlike perhaps 10, 15, 20 years ago, um, it seems like the work product of the summer study committees are resulting in fewer actual recommendations. And before, when something got sent to a summer study committee, the expectation was that you would come back with actual legislation and it would be hammered out over the course of maybe four or five, six meetings during uh, June, July, August, September. And now we're not seeing that. Now we're, we're seeing, oh, maybe two meetings over the course of the summer. They're back-ended toward more of September and October because sometimes these committees don't even uh, convene until August for the first time. And we're not seeing as much emphasis on the work product and, and as much confidence in that work product as we might have seen back you know, 15, 20 years ago. I, I would say that um, being as an outsider before pre-January 1 was the least amount of time the legislation, legislators meet, the better off Hoosiers are. Um, a lot of times um, you see legislation that goes up and uh, a local event happens and some reason you get a big outcry about that event and they jump the gun and go up there and make legislation and um, do not think about the ramifications of uh, when they put five gallons of water in this bucket and then down the road two or three drains out and hit somebody else. Uh, uh, they always try to re- make, make a repair. So uh, I think uh, I, that my first year, I think uh, the timing is probably just about perfect. You know, I think the study committees uh, do a lot of good work, and uh, they kind of basically, I call them education committees. They'll educate the legislators next session of what they uh, were able to talk to, to their community and the, uh, the leaders in that sector. And uh, so I think the, as little as possible, the better. I wanted to switch over for a little bit to uh, drug addiction. There's a bill regulating the key drug and meth production, pseudoephedrine. And we actually talked to Terre Haute Mayor uh, Duke Bennett this week. He was a champion behind that or, or did what he could to push that along. And he was a little disappointed it wasn't more. Uh, what's your take on it? I, I can tell you, my I, my good friend, and I mean this in, in all sincerity, Representative Ben Smaltz uh, from Auburn, I believe, uh, he worked extremely hard. He's a Republican from Auburn. Uh, he worked extremely hard on this issue. Uh, he actually came to each legislator, uh, I think privately, and told them what was going on in his community and how badly the methamphetamine uh, epidemic had hit his area. I f- I felt that the legislation that he had originally uh, was, uh, you know, very, I think, common sense. Uh, it also protected the consumer's right to be able to buy these medications if they needed them. I mean, there were several steps that were needed uh, before anyone would ever be required to obtain a prescription, several. Uh, and so I really liked that legislation, and, and I supported it. Uh, the problem was when it got to the Senate, uh, you know, they took it apart. Uh, sometimes very good ideas get to the Senate and they die there. And that's a shame. Uh, and what we what we saw come back was a much weaker version. Uh, hopefully it will do something, but time will tell. I think the, the whole probably push on the Senate side was probably from the, the pharmacist that uh, they didn't want the burden uh, with all the volume they have, uh, whether it's at uh, whatever brand it is, uh, walking through their their aisleway and come up to the counter and taking more time away from the actual pharmacist where his time is, is so dedicated now to try to get all that medication out to the right person and the right uh, amounts. Um, they just thought it was too much of a burden for them. And I can kind of see that. And then the burden also of having the prescription for every one 
you know, say, so if you're a truck driver driving across the states and you all of a sudden you get a cold and uh, you want to pull into a drugstore and get something for that uh, cold to get you through and boom, you got to have a prescription. That means you got to call your doctor up and get one, you know, emailed. And a lot of times uh, when I call my, my regular MD, I'm two months before I can even get in. So I can kind of see the balance. Um, I agree with the way the bill was written first because I think we have a, a escalating problem that's not going to get any better until we make some uh, hard corrective measures. Dan, you made a comment on this program a little, I don't know, a few months ago, mm-hmm. saying that if we didn't do something to address the drug problem in Indiana, nothing else we did was going to matter. Yeah, um, I still think that's true. Do you yeah. think we did enough? There were also some things passed about opiate addiction. Correct. Yeah, there were actually, yeah, there were some uh, really great pieces of legislation, uh, and I was really uh, excited to see that one of the uh, things that I have been pushing, which is the use of Vivitrol, uh, is finally taking a hold. It was codified in law this year. Uh, There are some standards set up. As a result, I actually had several doctors uh, in the Indianapolis area who contacted me to tell them about trials and programs that they are running. They wanted me to come up and and uh, watch and, uh, you know, hopefully get my support, I guess, for the, for the program. And for those of you who aren't aware, uh, Narcan is the opiate antagonist. It's when somebody overdoses on heroin, you give them Narcan and it stops the overdose. Uh, the, problem, the problem with Narcan is for it to be effective, somebody has to already be overdosing. Uh, and so what we should be doing is a two-pronged approach, and that is what Vivitrol is. Vivitrol is a uh, preventative. It's a, it can be a 30-day injectable where uh, the cravings are unbelievably reduced in the addict. Uh, the, it also blunts the euphoric effect and, frankly, uh, blunts the overall effect of opiate or, hero, or heroin use. Uh, And the most important component of it, in my mind, is it takes one moment of clarity. There's a pill version of Vivitrol, but that means every morning uh, somebody who is addicted and all and, you know, their mind is being controlled by this urge to use. uh, They have to have a moment of clarity every morning and take that pill with the Vivitrol injection. They need one moment of clarity a month. And they are they are covered for 30 days, and that is uh, invaluable. And I had it explained to me by somebody who was uh, in the addiction field as the greatest leap forward in addiction treatment ever. And so I'm a big supporter of it, and uh, I, I'm glad to see that the state is moving in that direction. I hope next session we do even more. Yeah, I, so what, what, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I just wanted to go ahead and get those numbers out one more time because uh, we're getting about, what, 15 minutes left in the show. So please call in 855-0811 or toll-free 877-285-9348. Go ahead, Ed. Yeah, Joe, Joe if I can jump back in on, on a process uh, statement here on, on the, the meth bill, the pseudoephedrine bill. And this just goes to, to both what uh, Representative Forstall and Representative Ellington have been talking about. If you look at the beginning of the session, look back to where people were when this thing was first proposed. Speaker Brian Bosma was adamant about making this a prescription-only medication. You could only get your uh, oh gosh, what are they? The the Allergan, the Allergan, and uh, I forget all the, the different you know pseudoephedrine drugs. Yeah, uh, yeah, all, all the prescription, and you know there were some constituents in, in every district that were really concerned about this. Um, you had one legislator, Representative Steve Davison, who's a pharmacist, weigh in on it and, and talk about um, some experiments, pilot projects up north that had seen pharmacists um, be able to, to kind of dispense and, and decide who would get it and who wouldn't. Talked about how that would work. And let me tell you, um, Ben Forstall is absolutely right about uh, Ben Smalls and the work that he did this session. I don't think I've seen any legislator get as many standing ovations from his colleagues on the floor as, as Ben Smalls did this year for all the work and the dedication and the, the listening that he did. Yeah. And, you know, Jeff, Jeff talked about um, you know, how the people would be better served by shorter sessions. That may be the case. But here, I think the legislation that, that came about really worked through a, a process of both uh, time and people. And if we had just had a, uh, a week, a month, whatever, for this session, 
we would have ended up with something that, that would have been a lot closer, I think, to what Speaker Bosmo was pushing, the uh, prescription only. And we ended up with something uh, a long way from that and something that, that Speaker Bosmo was much more comfortable with after hearing all the different sides and, and after it went through the, the Senate went through the different committees in both the House and the Senate, was debated on the floors in both chambers, went through conference committee, uh, went through literally a, a public airing through all the, the Cracker Barrel, Town Hall, Chamber of Commerce, sessions back home. People heard the ads from the, uh, the Consumer uh, Health Care Association folks, you know, the, the people behind these pharmaceuticals. We all started a, a real dialogue on this thing, and the legislation ended up being a whole lot better than any of the individual pieces at the beginning. It's a lot like, you know, Leader Pilat said about the the, uh, the road funding bill. You know, you took the best elements from each to listen to the people, what needed to be done, and you put that in legislation. Let's switch gears to education here. Uh, in years past, it's been dubbed, you know, the education session. Education kind of took a backseat, but last night... Saw lawmakers vote to get rid of the I step. Um, will doing that remove some of the pressure that's associated with the test now? I'll throw that out to both of you here. Well, I would say, uh, at least for next year, no, because it's still working through the process with that uh, contract with the second year. Uh, so we'll have to work through that. The only thing is, this test coming up, there's heavy, heavy penalties if it's not completed by, I think, July 1st which should be enough time to get it to all the uh, educators and school corporations so they can digest it and then turn their curriculum around to focus uh, to make sure that they cover these areas. Uh, so, cool. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, from my point of view, I think uh, doing away with the I-STEP is absolutely the right thing to do. And I'm going to even go a step further uh, and say that we should drastically reduce how often we test kids. Uh, I went to, there's a, a uh, Warren Township uh, is in my uh, district in Indianapolis. They have won awards. In fact, they were one of like four national race to the top award winners uh, from the President Obama. Uh, and they, uh, every year they hold a legislative, uh, you know, conclave or enclave where people can come in and uh, explain to legislators what is going on in education. And they put a graphic up on the screen uh, that just about made me fall out of my chair. It is their testing schedule throughout the year. And it is unbelievable. I, I, I actually went to the teachers afterwards and I said, do you have any time at all to teach what you want to teach? And they said, absolutely not. We don't have enough to teach to the test that they're making us teach to. Uh, and so I think we should go the opposite way. I, I mean, I think testing kids uh, two or three times in an education career uh, is enough to figure out whether or not they are uh, on par and moving in the right direction. And when, when we're talking about how to you know, evaluate and gauge where kids are, uh, we have that test already, and it's called our teachers. Uh, teachers have told me that they know when they pass out the I-STEP before it's ever taken, they can tell you every student who's going to pass and who's going to fail, and they're right all the time. Uh, and so a teacher knows if a child needs remediation, but what we shouldn't do is put kids under so much pressure that they hate school, they hate coming to uh, you know class, they hate taking these tests, and ultimately uh, they don't want to do it anymore. And I think this, this over-testing of our kids has really led to this exodus from school uh, because, frankly, the children are sick of, of feeling like they're under this amount of pressure, and I think it's unnecessary and unneeded, and I hope we start to see those that, that uh, constant standardized testing roll back. And, Ed, there's this task force or committee that's been formed now to uh, you know, work through this issue and what's going to happen next. What exactly is on the table? What decisions can they make? Well, the interesting thing is that the chair will not be... Uh, uh, Glenda Ritz, yeah. and, and that was a point of some contention, and I think that that's, that's kind of indicative of where we're going on this. You know, you asked about um, will, will there be less pressure now, you know, now that we've done away with ISTEP. Well, it's kind of a, a given that ISTEP wasn't going to survive this session. Um, there's an awful lot of pressure to get rid of it, as, as we've just talked about, but it puts more pressure on legislators, on state administrative officials, and on educators kind of going forward over the next two years. First, we've got, as, as I think Dan just pointed out, um, the, 
be I step for next year. And we, we've also discovered that simply changing the test vendor, the contractor, has not eliminated the, um, the problems on the ground. We're still seeing some issues with the actual test administration. But what we've got to do now, you know, through this task force and then probably legislatively after that, is come up with some kind of new testing protocol because we've got federal requirements, we've got things in, in state statutes about how teachers are going to be evaluated given some of these test scores. We're going to need to come up with something, and now it's going to be done in the, the white heat of a superintendent of public instruction race, which is going to become very, very partisan, as, as we've We've known now for literally the, the last four years, and then legislators are going to uh, have to come back in, in the long session next year, and in addition to the budget, long-term road funding things, and then every other imperative, they're going to have to deal with this again, and they're going to have to deal with this you know, after seeing how the teachers' unions in particular have uh, performed their job during the, the 2016 general election campaign. They're also going to see what the fallout is going to be from some of the, the very conservative Republicans around the state, particularly in North Central Indiana, and in terms of some of those primaries where legislators, um, and somebody mentioned earlier, um, Luke Kenley in particular, and David Long being primaried from the right. So there are all kinds of political pressures on this, and this test is going to have to be revamped or restructured um, given all of these different political considerations, in addition to the policy considerations that we haven't really thought in great detail about yet. Talking today on Noon Edition about the 2016 legislative session, the number to call with your questions, 812-855-0811, or you can tweet your questions at Noon Edition. There's also an education bill that had to do with vouchers. Um, can you explain a little bit about what that does? Because it gives, the way I understand it, is it gives folks two opportunities during a year in which they can sign up for a voucher. Yeah, it, it, essentially, and I, I, I'm, I'm not fortunate, or, or I guess I am fortunate to hmm. uh, to not serve on the education committee. Uh, but as I understand it, it's the largest expansion of vouchers that we have seen since uh, forever, uh, and. You know, I, personally, my point of view has been this. Uh, there have been almost 400 substantive changes in the last, I believe it was, five years. That is impossible for our educators to keep up with. I mean, there is no possible way that they can receive all of those, digest them, adapt, and then proceed accordingly. Uh, and so now to throw this... Uh, massive voucher expansion into the middle of that, I think is is just a little too much. It's a bridge too far. Uh, and and furthermore, when I talk to uh, you know constituents in my district, uh, they are I, largely wholesale against vouchers in principle. I I tend to think that you know look, the system is there. The system is what it is. Kids deserve an education, a great world class education in Indiana, no matter what school they go to. But until we have an accurate accounting and evaluation of where we're heading and what all of the changes we've made, how they are impacting kids and teachers, to keep piling on more changes is just going to damage the education system further. And for that reason, I voted against the expansion. We got a question from a caller saying about the railroad bill and talking about the abortion bill, too. If all of these, they're saying, if all these things are so wonderful, why do they get tucked in at the last minute or get amended in different ways? I've not been up here long enough to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can I, tell you. Know? you. It's because they're not wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, 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 the hard answer is the really tough, controversial stuff that people largely disagree with. They get held to the last hour, hoping that debate will be limited because people are tired and want to get out of there and those kinds of things. Luckily, that didn't happen, especially on uh, the abortion bill that you referenced. Uh, we had There were several members of uh, the Republican caucus and uh, almost all women, but actually a few men, uh, who came to the microphone and said, listen, I, with tears in their eyes, crying, saying, I am pro-life and I'm about to vote against a bill because this thing goes way too far. They were, I mean, they were devastated. And from my perspective, I wondered, 
you know, why leaders in that caucus would uh, allow that amount of consternation within the caucus to come out on the floor. It's only going to lead to hurt feelings. And frankly, the bill's unconstitutional. Every every lawyer that has taken a look at it has said on its face, it is unconstitutional. And so like all of the bills that pass like that, it'll go to court and it'll cost people money and ultimately inflame people's feelings. But hopefully it won't actually make it into law because it's unconstitutional. But it does make you wonder uh, why we see these things come out. It's, you know, it's just a hat tip to people who you're trying to, uh, you know, prove to them, hey, we're with you and we're trying to fight to be pro-life. But this bill in particular was something, House Bill 1337, in my opinion, was something insidious and very different uh, than all prior uh, abortion bills that we've seen. We only have about two minutes left, yep. and I kind of have a big question that we're probably not going to have time to even get answered. But are we going to be able to make LGBT anti-discrimination maybe in some form more palatable to lawmakers next year? How do we do that? I would say... The first way you do it is through the ballot box. Yeah. That's what he's, <laughs> yes, that was my answer. Actually, yes, if there is a if there's a shift in the amount of numbers and in uh, uh, Hoosiers speak at the ballot box and uh, you know frankly help to return some balance. We you know Democrats are in a super minority and my my friends in the Republican caucus are in a super majority. If that if there's a little more balance returned, uh, we can absolutely see LGBT non discrimination language and frankly uh, we can make discrimination illegal across the state. If that happens, but we need people to get out and vote and speak at the ballot box. Real quick. Okay, so I do not believe in discrimination. That answers that last question. Uh, Talking about career pathways, going back real quick, what it does, it it provides a flexibility that uh, those teachers who pick up extra activities outside of that classroom that gets paid for that for a mentoring program. We have a lot of kids, you know, in different types of districts that just – they just fail to – I guess, get all the educational opportunities they have so they drop out. So there's a segment of that uh, our population that needs to be taken care of even when they drop out, and this money goes towards that. And the only thing, you, people say it increases vouchers. Other sides say it don't, does not increase vouchers. All it does, it takes the timing of those when they do the count. Instead of having them count one time a year, it counts twice a year. And on that second count, there's no money that comes out of that school corporation's budget, so there's no loss for that second count. Now, what it does next year, uh, it may be a little different, but uh, intentionally it, it will not hurt. I'm afraid I'm going to have to cut you off there because, unfortunately, we are out of time and looking forward to following this discussion again next year with some new faces in the, in the session as well, I'm sure. That is all the time we have today. I want to thank our guests for joining us, Representative Forstall, Representative Ellington, as well as Ed Feigenbaum. Thank you all. Thank you. For our producer, Sophia Salvi, and engineer Mike Pashkash, co-host Joe Wren, I'm Sarah Whitmire. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and The Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.